0: If you have your Bibles, uh, please go ahead and open them with me to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Today we're going to begin our journey into studying the 10 plagues that came against Egypt and against Pharaoh. And we're going to begin doing this by looking at the first two plagues by reading chapter 7, verse 14, all the way down to chapter 8, verse 15. It says Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. You know, at times when we are reading our Bibles, it can feel very much like the stories that we are reading are only ancient accounts of things that do not really apply to us or to our lives today. Isn't that true? We, we can assume that these, these stories have little or no significance for us. What, what impact is the account of 10 plagues coming against a pharaoh of Egypt thousands of years ago? What impact is that supposed to have on our lives? Why, how is this important for us today? But one thing that That we must notice as we begin to study these 10 plagues is, is the significance and the relevance of what happens here, not just for ancient Israel and for Egypt, but for our lives today as well. In chapter 12 of Exodus, at the end of all of the plague accounts, God tells Moses that these things are to be a memorial for them, that these things are to be remembered for generations to come, that they are to be statutes and truths for God's people forever. And they are to be that, not because they're just really cool bedtime stories to tell to our children at night. No, they are to be a memorial. They are to be statues and truths that we speak and share with those that we love because they highlight what we need most in life. Church, we may not ever turn on our faucet and have blood come out instead of water, We may never have thousands of frogs suddenly infest our homes, although at one o'clock on Friday morning, a bat flew around our house. That was not fun. We may never experience the things that they experienced in exactly the same way. But what we need to see here is that what happens in Exodus chapter 7 to 11 is not just random acts of judgment on God's part against Pharaoh and against Egypt. No, no, what we see here, church, is that our God, who is described in chapter 15 as the man of war, our God is very intentionally, very specifically undermining and attacking the false gods of Egypt. He is, he is systematically dismantling the belief system of Egypt in order to establish his own supremacy, his own greatness over all the other false gods in this world. And this, this systematic dismantling, it, it doesn't just apply to the false gods in the Egyptian belief system. No, this, this systematic dismantling, church, it applies to our lives right here in America today. The gods may not be named the same, but the false gods that we often put our trust in on a daily basis are the same. And our God, Yahweh, is as eager today to undermine the false gods in our lives as he was for Pharaoh on that day. He is as eager to to belittle and honestly to mock and to make fun of and to destroy whatever empty thing your heart is trusting in this week. Whatever false god you're living for and obeying, he is eager to undermine and destroy it in your heart. Why? Because he's a big cosmic bully who likes to push his weight around? No. No, he's eager to destroy every false god in your life so that his name, so that his power so that his glory, his grace, and his mercy, and his goodness, and his beauty, and his love, which are unmatched in this world, so that his gospel might be seen and known and celebrated in your life and in all the world. That is what God is doing for the Israelites, and that's what God is doing for us. Our God is a man of war, and he's winning the battle. Main idea this morning is, is this. The Lord judges every false God so that we will trust in him alone. He judges every false God so that you and I will put our trust in him alone. And we have three points. Number one, the blood of judgment. Number two, the blood of salvation. And number three, the burden to believe. Point number one: the blood of judgment. Many people today often hate the idea of God's judgment. We, we hate the idea that God would wage war against anyone or, or anything, right? Here in America, we, we want a God... We want to form and craft a God who, who only comforts and supports and consoles the people that he loves. A God who accepts and affirms. He, we hate the idea of a God who is against anything. This, this is very uncomfortable for us, right? We live in a very accepting culture and so we want our God to be as accepting as we are. And so seeing God's judgment on display as we do in these chapters can be a very uncomfortable thing. But but this is what we see in the story of the ten plagues. These are not just signs and wonders that God does in order to display his power and goodness. No, these are signs of God's active and personal judgment against sin. We often talk about what happens here as, as the ten plagues, right? So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the plague of water into blood, the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, of flies, of livestock, of boils, of hail, of locusts, of darkness, and of death to the firstborn. We call these things the ten plagues, and then that word plague is a helpful word. You can see it in chapter 8, verse 2. A plague, at least in our language, is simply an, an outbreak of something horrible. And so it makes sense that we use this word in this context. But listen, in the original language, this word for plague actually meant something much more. The word plague here does not just mean that something difficult or hard happened to occur. No, rather it means that something hard or difficult is intentionally done. It's intentional. It has a purpose behind it. The word plague in the original Hebrew, it means to injure by striking. It means to hit. It means to punch. It means to make a blow against. It means to strike. And We know that that's what's going on in the plagues because of Exodus chapter 3 verse 20 when God says to Moses, I will stretch out my arm and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. God's doing something very intentional. He he is entering into the boxing ring with his enemies, and he's not just going to have a friendly sparring session with them. No, he is going to hit them. He is going to strike them. He is going to judge them. He is going to knock them out. Church, the 10 plagues speak of God's active judgment. And so it it should be no surprise to us as we begin to read here that the first of these 10 blows, the the first of these 10 plagues has to do with blood. Blood is a sign of judgment. It's a sign of death. Blood speaks of trouble. The wages of sin is death and blood leads to death. And there's a whole lot of blood in this story, isn't there? There. In verse 17, God warns Pharaoh through Moses. He says, here's what's going to happen, Pharaoh. There's there's going to be a lot of blood, and it's not going to be pleasant. And Pharaoh, this is because you have refused to believe in me. You have refused to obey my word. This is because you have sinned. God, God warns Pharaoh, and then it comes about. Verse 20. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. This is a lot of blood. And listen, it really is blood. Many people have tried very, very, very hard to explain the ten plagues as just natural occurrences that may have happened. They try to say that these things didn't really happen in a miraculous way from the Lord. They were just natural occurrences that happened in succession to to convince Pharaoh they say things like, the water didn't really turn into blood. No, there was just a lot of floodwaters in the Nile and it it stirred up a lot of the mud and a lot of the algae in that day and the mud was red in in Egypt and so it just looked like blood. And then that algae made it impossible for the frogs to stay in the water so they came out into the land. It was a natural thing and then they died off on the land and that bred gnats and flies and so they they give these natural explanations for what happened here. They say things like, oh, the blood just, it was just the sun shining on the water in a particular way. They try really hard to explain these things away, but I do not think that any of that is necessary. Our God is a God who spoke the universe into existence. He's able to do these things in a moment, and so it should be no surprise to us that he's able to accomplish these 10 signs in Egypt. And the way that the scripture speaks about them speaks of them being real, He doesn't say, and he made it look like blood in order to convince Pharaoh. It says, no, it turned into blood. And the way that Pharaoh is convinced by it, like if it was a regular thing for the Nile to flood and stir up algae, he'd be like, Moses, that's happened every year for the last 30 years. What good does that do for me? Friends, this is real blood because it is a sign of real judgment. And it should not be a surprise to us And specifically, it should not be a surprise to us that this first act happens in the Nile. If you read through the text today, you're going to see the word Nile 14 times. Clearly, the Nile River is important. And church, it's important for several reasons. First of all, because this is judgment and the Nile is where Pharaoh had committed some of his very worst sins, right? Remember chapter one, when the Nile is where Pharaoh threw all the baby boys into the water to die. Pharaoh commits genocide in the Nile, and so it's it's no surprise that God would strike here first. But that's not all, and we really need to see this. the Ten Commandments are not just God's judgment against Pharaoh. No, they are God's judgment against all of the Egyptian gods around them. The, the Nile River, it represented many of the gods that were worshipped in Egypt. Gods like the god Happy, who was the god of flood, or the god named Knum, who was the guardian of the Nile. And these gods in Egypt, they were a really, really, really big deal because the Nile was a really, really big deal. Egypt was so powerful in that day because the Nile was such a a valuable natural resource. The the water of the Nile, it brought life into a desert place. It provided food through its fish and plantation. It, It provided transportation. The Nile was the reason why Egypt was so powerful. But instead of thanking the one true God for the good gift that the Nile was, in their idolatrous hearts they took the gift and worshipped the gift rather than the giver. They, They conjured up these false gods to worship from the Nile and gave them all the credit and all the glory instead of Yahweh. And so do you see what God is doing here? He is beginning to strike down any false gods that they have. He's, he's knocking over the, the empty ideas and the empty places that they have put their confidence and hope. He's showing the Egyptians, he's showing the Israelites, he's showing us that, that where we put our trust, where we find our strength, if it is anywhere but in Yahweh, that place is nothing compared to Him. The Nahum was so important, it was so strong, it was so powerful. It, it was their confidence. It was their security. It was, in many ways, their identity. And God says, look at how much stronger I am than your greatest source of strength and confidence, your greatest resource. Look look at how I can take the Nile, which is the lifeblood of Egypt, and actually turn it into blood, a sign of death. And then there's the, the plague of the frogs. Crazy story. Did you know that one of the goddesses of Egypt was pictured as a woman with the head and body of a frog. I think we have a picture of this here. Her her name was Hecti. She was apparently the the god of fertility and life, a a life-giving goddess goddess from the Nile. And so, so how remarkable that Yahweh takes this sign of the goddess, the, the, the picture of a frog which would have been revered and worshipped. It would have been cherished. How remarkable that he takes it. He causes thousands of frogs to come out into the land. It says that it covered the land so that the sign which was so dear to them would suddenly be hated and now a source of disgust. And in verse 22, it does say that the magicians were able to do the same things. They apparently turned a little bit of water into blood and they apparently made frogs come out of the land and they probably did that through demonic power or at least through sleight of hand. But isn't it ironic that Pharaoh's magicians can't solve either of these problems? They can only worsen the problem. Right? If the God of the Niles were stronger than Yahweh, wouldn't they have said no? No back from blood into water, or all these frogs back and they can't do it. All they can do is further prove god's, god's strength and power in this moment. Friends, this is what God is doing. Each of the 10 plagues are going to be a way through which God strikes at the deities and the false gods of Egypt. Look at, listen to this quote from James Boyce from 10th Presbyterian uh, many years ago. He says, in order to understand these plagues, We need to understand that they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel to the Egyptian gods. There were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered around the three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. It does not surprise us, therefore, he says, that the plagues God sent against Egypt in this historic battle followed this 3 force pattern. The first two plagues, which we're studying today, were against the gods of the Nile. The next four plagues were against the land gods. The final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. Church, each of the ten plagues are going to be a way through which Yahweh strikes at the deities and the false gods of Egypt. And church, each of the ten places is going to be a way in which God is going to strike a blow at your false gods in your life as well. The worthless places that we put our hope and trust. God is striking in order to make much of himself. And he's not messing around. He's hitting hard. You know, back in college, I remember a night in the guy's dorm when we decided to have a few boxing matches, and so we went down to the lobby, and we created a boxing ring, and a guy had a couple sets of boxing gloves, and so we had different rounds, and I was sitting on the side, and I was waiting my turn, and I finally got an opportunity to go in. I'd never boxed before in my life, but, but I was strong. I was fairly athletic. I felt like I could handle myself, but they put me up against Will Snyder, who was probably the strongest and most athletic guy on campus, and so I knew I was probably in for trouble, but I still wanted to, to try to do my best. And so we stood there, we, we did the dance for a minute, and then I'm not a fast guy. I, I tried to punch him, and it was like in slow motion. Like when it, like, the punch came, and Will was just like, oh. And then he just looked at me and just went, bam! And he hit me so hard, I'll never, it, it shook my whole body. And I, I, I in the moment, I, I, I kept standing up, and the whole room was like, oh, he's still standing. And then things went black. <laughs> I fell on my face. I woke up a few minutes later. I blacked out just like that. This is what God is doing. He's not messing around. He's not pulling his punches. He is in the ring with the Egyptian deities, and he's going to prove himself as stronger than them all. But maybe you say, but Joel, what does the Nile have to do with me? What do frogs have to do with me today? I don't worship the God of the Nile. I don't worship a a fertility goddess with the head of a frog, a a goddess of physical strength and fitness. Well, maybe you don't. But what if we change the words in the story? What if God said to Moses, Moses, go stand before America and strike the banking system so that it turns into nothing. Moses, Silicon Valley Bank and others Turn them from a sign of strength and power into a sign of weakness and death. Or Moses, stand before America who who so loves their physical strength and beauty and who idolizes their fertility and their power and strike them with personal weakness and sickness and disease and depression. What if God did those things? What would that reveal to us about our hearts? I imagine that it would. I imagine that it is revealing a whole lot about our hearts. It reveals false gods that we worship. Empty, shallow places that we put our trust and hope in every single day. And when they're taken away, aren't we shaken? Don't we feel our our, our anxiety rise within us? And some of us might try to be the magicians and explain it away and say, well, praise God I didn't invest in the banks. I bought silver or I bought gold. I have crypto. Praise God that I I locked in that lower interest rate. Now I'm saying we're just worshiping something else. And it won't prove anything to us. When God struck the Nile, he was striking at Egypt's economy and their greatest source of of pride and strength. What is it in your life? We need to ask that question today. What do we worship and what do we put our trust in more than God? Is it money? Is it physical fitness? Is it fertility? Is it the goddess of of physical strength and beauty? Redeemer family, let let me just... Let me just encourage you, let me encourage myself, let me encourage all of us to make ourselves vulnerable over these next three weeks as we study these plagues together. Let let me encourage you to not assume that your belief system is perfect. Let me encourage you to, to humbly put every false god in the ring with Yahweh and then let's see who's standing at the end put the God of money into the ring. Put put the God of security, the God of prosperity, the God of pleasure, the God of reputation, the God of success, the God of power, the God of family, the God of marriage. Put all of it, whatever it is, put it in the ring, and let's see how they fare against Yahweh himself. Let's humbly consider who is most worthy of our trust. Amen? That leads us to our second point, point number two. The first point was the blood of judgment. Point number two is the blood of salvation. So how do you feel about God's judgment? Does God's judgment make you you a little bit uncomfortable? Do you you prefer to think of a God who is only gentle and and peaceful? Redeemer family, it, it needs to be boldly said that you and I do not want to worship a God who is only gentle. You don't want to worship a God who is accepting and affirming of all things. You you don't want a God who does not stand up against wrong and injustice in this world. You don't want a God who is a pushover and who wants to share his glory with a frog goddess, or share his glory with the God of the Nile, or share his glory with America, or share his glory with you. No, you want a God who absolutely insists on standing alone in his glory. Why? Because he knows that to be accepting of false things, to affirm sin, to allow us to worship false gods is to steal from us the greatest source of life and hope and peace, which is himself. If God was accepting of everything that we desired, if he was cool with believe what you want to believe and you believe what you want to believe, he would not be a God of love. He would be an unloving God. No, he's a God who knows that there is only one way and who insists that people follow that one way and who actively and intentionally judges those who do not follow the way. That is a God who is truly loving. In his great love, our God will not allow all of humanity to worship dead idols. In his great love, he will not allow us to give our affections to another. Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah says that God actually contends with his people. He wrestles with us. He judges us at times. Why? Why? Because his people have forsaken the one true God. And they have drunk, Jeremiah says, from broken cisterns. Cisterns with dirty water. When they have the fountain of living water to drink deeply from. Christian, God will contend with you in this life. He will undermine false gods in your life. Why? Because when you worship other things. When you grow comfortable with that sin in your life. When you live for yourself, you are drinking from broken cisterns with disease and contaminated and dirty water when there is a fountain of living water for you to enjoy. He wants you to be refreshed. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be satisfied. And so he contends with you in life. He judges everything that does not stand in solidarity with him. And he is right and good and just and holy to do these things. Our God is good in his judgment. Christian, you do not need to blush when you talk about God's judgment. You don't need to be bashful about this. This is not the dark side of Christianity that we need to hide or be bashful or apologetic about when people bring it up. You don't need to apologize and say, oh, yeah, those are the harder parts of God's word. Let's go read a psalm and let's, let's be happy in the gospel together. No, it's good for us to see. It's good for us to believe and to know and to celebrate the justice of our holy God. This is who he is. He stands unmatched and he God's word says, is a consuming fire. We're going to see throughout this book of Exodus that his presence is like fire and smoke. The whole mountain of Sinai, it trembled and shook under the weight of his holy presence. People will die if they approach this holy God callously. They will die. But this is our God, and we don't need to apologize for him. We must not apologize for him. We should not want it any other way. We should want to worship a God who is great in majesty and great in holiness and great in justice. But that does cause a problem. His justice is glorious, but his justice is hard if he is this God of judgment, then you and I have an issue because none of us can stand before his holiness. We'll be consumed. Friend, you have committed enough sin in the last hour even while being at church. Good good job. You've committed enough sin even in the last hour to deserve eternal wrath from this holy God. The thoughts that you've had the way that you've judged that person across the room, the way that you have gone angry in your heart towards others, the jealousy, the love, you deserve judgment. The wages of sin, even one sin, is death. And so all of us deserve death because all of us have bought wholesale into this thing called sin. Not one is righteous, no, not one. So what do we do? Well, even in our text today, we see God's willingness to relent of his judgment. God could never have turned the blood back into water. He could never have sent the frogs back into the Nile. He could have destroyed not just Egypt, but Israel as well because of their many sins, and he could have done it with a snap of his finger. He could have done all these things. But in chapter 8, verse 8, we see Pharaoh say to Moses and Aaron, plead with the Lord and take away the frogs from me and from my people, Now that's not a true repentance from Pharaoh. He did not have a change of heart. He just wants to be free from the discomfort of all these frogs. But but in this, we see something amazing. We see that Yahweh is a God who hears the pleading of his people. He, He is a God who hears and who responds to our cry. Verse 12, it says that Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Even though there's a lot more judgment to come, this is a picture of God's mercy. He is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is a God who responds to us in our sin and desires to have mercy on us. And even though it's not clearly seen in this text today, we know that the same God who pours out wrath on Egypt through these plagues is the same God who will pour out mercy on his own people. Church, church, I have been spending a lot of time in my devotions this year in the Gospel of John, and it has been so good for my soul. I'm loving the Gospel of John in a particular way because there are so many parallels in Jesus' life to the people of Israel found in the book of Exodus. So when Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, has all of this I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the door of salvation, I am this, I am that, he is making a reference back to Exodus chapter 3 and he is saying, I am the same God, the God of judgment that Moses saw in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus claiming to be the bread of life, that's a parallel to the manna that we're going to learn about later in this book. Jesus is the same God that is contending, that was contending with Pharaoh in Egypt. And church, listen, this is why in John chapter 2, the first of Jesus' miracles is him transforming water yet again, just like the first of his plagues was transforming water. Do you remember when Jesus went to that wedding and they ran out of wine? What does he do? He tells them, fill the jars with water, and he turns that water into wine. When we read that, we should immediately think of Exodus chapter 7 when he turned water into blood. One, a sign of judgment, the other, the sign of salvation and rejoicing. The same God who turned the Nile into blood, turns water into wine, because he is the same God who is right and good to judge our sin. He is the same God who says... I will judge your sin, but I have a way for you to be saved from your sin and from my judgment. This God who is full of justice and of judgment, he is even more full of grace and mercy for his people. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. The the God of the Old Testament that we're studying is the same as the New Testament God. They are not different gods. They do not change personality in the New Testament. They are the same. He is not less angry towards sin in the New Testament. No, the blood of judgment is as present in the New Testament as it was in the Old. The penalty is still death. Death. But Jesus comes and he turns water into wine and into rejoicing and not blood because he knows that he is the perfect lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He came to sacrifice himself. He came to die, to shed his blood, real blood, because it's real judgment against your sin. And he came to do it to offer real forgiveness over your entire life and over the sins you committed just this morning. This is why the communion meal, which we will celebrate in just a few moments, we drink wine as a sign of his blood because his blood is the blood of salvation. His blood has washed our sins away. He has been fully just and merciful at the same time. This is the blood of our salvation. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious Is the flow that washed me white as snow. No other fount we know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of salvation is the blood of our Savior. And anyone who allows Him to wash them in that blood, you will be forgiven, and the wrath of God will pass over you and not drop on you. This is the gospel, and it is glorious. And it must be believed. That leads us to our third point, point number three, the burden to believe. So throughout all of the ten plagues, the call, we're going to see it again and again, the call is for Pharaoh and for Egypt and for God's people to believe. In our text today, verse 17, God says that these plagues are so that Pharaoh will know. Chapter 8, verse 10 again, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. The burden is to believe, to know that Yahweh is the one true God. This is the, the burden of these, these stories and these accounts. God, God is demonstrating that he is he's worthy of our faith and worthy of our trust. He wants our entire belief system to be him and nothing but him. And he's going to undermine every other God in order for us to turn our trust and our faith fully back to him. And listen, he's doing it for those who are already Christian and he's doing it for those who are not yet Christian. If you are not a Christian here this morning, first of all, we want you to know that we love you and we thank God for you. Thank you for being here. Coming to church as a non-Christian is an uncomfortable thing to do. Thank you. Can't believe that you're here. You could be so many other places. Listen, God wants you to know that he will continue to topple things over in your life. He will, over time, systematically dismantle things in your life that you have put your hope and your confidence in, not so that you're just miserable and broken, but so that you will turn, so that you will respond, and so that you'll put your trust in the one true and living God, And so your life will be transformed. The call of this text is for you as a non-Christian to believe, to to not be like Pharaoh, who in, in chapter 7, verse 23, it says, did not take even this to heart. He ignored these realities. Or in chapter 8, verse 15, who would not listen. If you are not a Christian today, don't be like Pharaoh. Don't don't be like him. If you if you feel like things in your life are falling apart, if you feel like God is speaking to you in this moment, it could be very well that he is calling you to himself and you should believe in his name and call upon him for the forgiveness of your sins. And church family, the the burden to believe is It's not just for those who are not yet Christian, but for all of us as Christians as well. I was affected this week by verse 18 in in chapter 7, where God says that he will turn the Nile into blood, listen, so that the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. How good of God to cause you and I to grow weary of drinking from false places of trust and worship? Are there things in your life that you put your trust in that God is undermining and giving you a distaste for? Have you been worshiping God and alcohol? Have you been worshiping God and food? Have you been worshiping God and control over your family? Have you been worshiping God and pornography? Have you been worshiping God and gossip? Have you put your trust in your own strength, your own work ethic, your own excellence, your own morality, your own political perspectives, your own pursuit of anything? What false gods have you put your allegiance towards? Part of what God wants to do throughout these next three three weeks is to cause us to cause you and I to grow weary of drinking from those broken cisterns. He wants to expose the false allegiances of our hearts, the the idolatry. He wants us to see how silly and foolish those things are compared to him, and he wants us to trust in him alone. This is the burden to believe. Redeemer family, let's be vulnerable over these next three weeks. Let's put all of our gods into the boxing ring with Yahweh and let's see who stands at the end. Don't assume that your belief system is perfect. Humbly come and ask God to expose every false belief in your heart. Humbly come and ask him to remind you of how worthy he is of your entire belief system. He does not need to partner with anyone else. He wants you fully to himself. And he has proven how trustworthy he is the life, death, and sacrifice of his son. The burden to believe this morning is the burden to celebrate yet again the blood of our salvation which came to us through the cross. Let's believe him together this week. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as I pray?